As Michigan's most powerful and influential voice for business, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce stands ready to serve you. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com to learn more now. Hey there. Before we get to the show, we just want to give you a heads up. This episode contains thoughts of suicide and scenes that may be disturbing to some listeners. We advise you to use your discretion when listening. I'm not looking at you. Nope. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we... Um... I, actually, by now, it's kind of hard to believe this happened. Renee Chellian has owned and run abortion clinics in Metro Detroit since 1976. We, we knew, realistically, we knew what was going to happen, but it still didn't... It, it, it almost hit, like, new news. I mean, it didn't, right? Yes. It, there was a small part of me that held out some hope. The clinics are called the Northland Family Planning Centers. It was at one of these nondescript brick buildings in Westland that Free Press columnist Nancy Kaffer and Michigan radio reporter Sarah Swick met Renee on June 24th. It was just hours after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the 1973 landmark ruling Roe v. Wade. So where did you, how did you find out this morning? I actually didn't think the decision would come down today. So my hair was wet. I was finishing putting on makeup. And when I saw that Dobbs came out, I I started to sob. My daughters both called me right away, and then we all started calling each one of the clinics, where by then family members had called and told their um, daughters, and everybody was crying. Now we know um, that the justices don't care about women's lives. The Roe ruling had affirmed the constitutional right to abortion, but this ruling, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, threw the question of abortion back to the states. In Michigan, there's already a ban on abortion on the books from 1931. It was unenforceable under Roe, and abortion is still legal here, but that's only because of a temporary injunction in a lawsuit. That could change. Michigan women and other pregnant people here must now wait and see. Wait and see if the state will return to life as it was before Roe, a way of living that Renee Chillian can't and won't forget. Why did you feel like this was something that you wanted to do to devote your you know, life to, I guess? Well, I had, had an illegal abortion. I'm Carrie Jr. II, and this is On The Line. So I was in the 10th grade, and um, that summer, um, I knew I was pregnant. I was wrapping pads up and putting them in the wastebasket. My boyfriend, he was 16 years old. He was pressuring me to have sex. Nobody would sell him condoms. I'd probably fall in those statistics of getting pregnant maybe the first time I had sex. This is a special story reported by Detroit Free Press columnist Nancy Kaffer, Michigan radio reporter Sarah Swick, and On the Line. With Roe v. Wade out the window, Nancy and Sarah wanted to look back by speaking with Renee. 
who 56 years ago got an abortion in Michigan before they were legal. Why this collaboration, uh, Sarah, Michigan Radio, Nancy, Free Press, why did you two come together to, to tell this story? So Nancy and I, we've been friends for, for over 10 years now, and I think we've wanted to collaborate on a story for a long time. So this is a, a collaboration that's 10 years in the making. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could say it that way. Now, we want to note Nancy Kaffer has a bit of a different role than some of the other journalists that come on our show. She's a columnist, which means in the journalism world, it's her job to give her opinion. But it's based on facts and reporting. Nancy, you had covered um, Renee before. And, and so my question really is, why Renee? Why this clinic? I met her um, this spring after it became really clear after the oral arguments in Dobbs, you know, the Dobbs case that that Roe was in real danger. And um, Renee is someone who's, she has decided to take on that risk that comes with sharing your story, um, both as a person who has had an abortion and a person who is now a, an abortion provider. And she's really dedicated her whole life to making sure that women have better choices. I mean, she, she, she could have died. Yeah, and the story, um, I, I assume we're going to let Renee tell it in her own words in, in some way here, but um, is pretty harrowing. I wish I could tell you that I set out to be an abortion provider. Mm -hmm. Renee. My entire life has been um, serendipity is the best word. She was 15 years old. Um, when she found out she was pregnant, she hid it for a while because she didn't want her parents to know. When, when I was really terrified, I considered killing myself. My mother just took me to a doctor and sort of forced the whole thing. She talked to our family doctor who said, if this were my daughter, I would find someone, but I can't help you. I could lose my medical license. My parents talked to my boyfriend's dad and one night they came to my bedroom and I was actually packing a suitcase to get married to my 16-year-old boyfriend. So in 1966, I would have had to drop out of high school. I would not have been allowed to come back. My boyfriend wouldn't have had to drop out. And my mom and dad came in my bedroom and said, you know, would you like to have an abortion? They were like, but this has to be secret. Like, we could go to jail. Other people could go to jail. When I said to my mom, I would, do, I would do anything not to be pregnant, my parents had talked to my boyfriend's um, father. He paid for my abortion. So how much would that procedure cost today? It's like about $20,000 in today's dollars. So yeah, $20,000 today. Um, and uh, ranged by her boyfriend's father who had, you know, connections and you know, basically, it's it sort of almost sounds like something you would see or, you know, maybe see in a movie, I guess. What I knew is that we had a party line in the house in 1966. Nobody had their own phone line. So there were a series of code words used. And so the morning that my abortion appointment was made, Daddy and I drove um, to a parking lot. I... We got into another car. We were blindfolded. We, when the blindfold was taken off, we were in a warehouse of some kind. And I believe that because the floors were cement floors, but they were, there were grease stains and oil stains. And there was not much else in there. And nothing that I can remember except 
a lot of card table chairs and a lot of other women, girls. I don't know. I was afraid to look at their faces. So I counted shoes. I actually don't remember going in the room. When I woke up, my dad was with me. The ordeal was long from over, however. Renee got an infection. She believes the only reason she survived and didn't become infertile is because a sympathetic Highland Park doctor prescribed her antibiotics. And even then, she wasn't expelling the pregnancy. Daddy and I made another trip down to a drugstore. And we um, went in and gave a fake name. And they gave us a bottle of quinine. Nothing happened with that. And it was decided that we would have a second appointment. I went home and I, maybe it was a day or two, um, I did start having labor pains. And my dad packed up all the kids. So I had younger siblings and um, took them for the day because nobody knew if I was going to be screaming. My mom closed all the windows. It was August, it was about 100 degrees. The house was hot. I passed the pregnancy in the toilet and my mother asked me if I wanted to see it and I told her no. And But then there was the dilemma of what do we do with it? And another phone call was made to my boyfriend's dad. For $200 more, somebody came and picked up the pregnancy. My dad came home and he came in with a steak and a bottle of grape juice and a package of beets and everything he thought was going to build up my blood. He sat down and said, you can never tell anyone because no man will ever marry you. You're gonna be okay, we're gonna take care of you, and after this conversation, we'll never discuss it again. And we didn't for more than 20 years. I was, that was gonna be my, did you never discussed it again with your parents? Not until, see my daughter was probably 1985. After the break, how an abortion patient went on to aid other pre-Roe abortions, and what she says people who've only lived under Roe may not understand. As Michigan's leading statewide business advocacy organization, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce is on the job every day standing up for job providers in the legislative, political, and legal arenas. We are the unified voice of thousands of members who employ over one million Michiganders. We work with trade associations and local chambers of commerce of every size and kind in all 83 counties of the state. We know business in Michigan. Learn more today about how we can protect, connect, and strengthen your business. Whether that's advocating on your behalf at the Capitol, helping meet your informational training and networking needs, or boosting your bottom line visibility and voice, we're on the job for you. Make my chamber your chamber. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com, to learn more now. And we're back with Detroit Free Press columnist Nancy Kaffer and Michigan radio reporter Sarah Swick telling the story of Renee Chellian, an abortion clinic founder. We left off hearing about Renee's own illegal abortion. 
But as Nancy tells us next, Renee went on to aid other abortion patients by working with the Michigan doctor who'd helped her after the fact. He'd actually offered her a job after he delivered her sister. All right, Nancy, so what happens next in Renee's story? She started working with doctors here in Michigan to fly to Buffalo, which was a common thing for people to do back then, to fly to Buffalo to terminate the pregnancy. He never mentioned my abortion, ever. And I have to say, I didn't think about it a lot, except in the context of, oh my God, if you fly to Buffalo or anywhere in the state of New York, you have a safe abortion by a doctor. You know what his name is. You know he's a doctor. So that... That overwhelming feeling um, never left me. After Roe, they opened a clinic to, to perform you know, abortions here once it was legal. And then she left the doctor and struck out on her own because she wanted to offer a different kind of abortion care. She and this other first generation of post-Roe abortion providers really developed this model for compassionate care. The clinic, you know, as it is now, you know, a lot of the rooms have softer lighting. There are things that women, that make women feel comfortable, like colors and scents. You know, abortion's a very safe medical procedure. It's much safer than pregnancy. And that's according to case fatality rates from the CDC. It can be it can be an emotionally challenging procedure, though. And so they developed this new model of care. I had a dream about how this could be, and I wanted to see that dream come true. My husband and I had worked six jobs between the two of us. We, we saved almost $100,000 for a house. And I went to him and said, what if I use the money to open a clinic? He said, do you think you can succeed. And I said, well, I don't think I can fail. And that was that. Can I just, um, I guess I'm wondering, because you... Michigan Radio's Sarah Swick. Talk so much about how your parents are very insistent that this must be a secret forever. Mm -hmm. um, and how much that was emphasized. I guess I'm wondering why and at what point you decided to, to share your, your abortion story. I mean, did it start more with more people who we were close to, and then sort of, or no. how did it work? <laughs> um, so it was around 1984 or 85. I was on the board of Michigan NARAL. That's an abortion rights group. And National NARAL was calling for a speak out. I just knew it was time. And I, once I got my kids to bed, sat down with my husband and told him. And he started sobbing because he said, you know, you could have died. My husband was a police officer in Highland Park. And then he started telling me how before Roe, he had to go to hospitals to interrogate women who were admitted to the hospital, bleeding, pus oozing from their vagina. They smelled with fever and infection. And it was his job to interrogate them, to find out who did their abortion, and while there, no arrest would be made for the woman, they were still interrogating her when she was sick. And he said he hated that more than anything, tried to avoid it. But that was the first time he ever told me that story. Her husband was on board. Um, her father was okay with it. Um, but one of the stories that stuck out to me that she said was she, she and her husband were driving in the car 
And she told, you know, her mother-in-law what she planned on doing. And her mother-in-law, I guess, is from Syria. It's a very old country. And so I was in the back seat, and I leaned forward, and I started telling her. And she told me, good for you. I almost died of an illegal abortion in Syria. My husband took the car off the road, back on the road. <laughs> I thought he was going to have a heart attack. Renee also reached out to someone else that old high school boyfriend she'd gotten pregnant with. And he told me that his father sent him away to camp because he was worried that he would not stay away from my house. And he said while he was at camp, he wanted to kill himself because he thought I was going to die. He joined the army and went to Vietnam and volunteered for suicide missions. Sorry, this is, no. is was, he, was he eventually okay? Like, did no. He, no? No, he, you know, whatever suicide missions he had um, volunteered for left him with some injuries that got him hooked on pain medication. He died of an overdose. I mean, it's just, this is part of why uh, uh, what's so important about getting these stories is because the conversation that can be had about these topics can be so top level. Like we can talk about the Supreme Court, we can talk about the laws, but this is what's going on in the trenches that people don't see and why it is that people feel, you know, the way that they feel about their their, their beliefs on these issues. Um, what has she told you about this decision on Friday? What were her feelings on that when it came down? Well, she couldn't stop crying. Just this is this has been her life's work. So everybody's crying, and mostly for the patients. I mean, when I think about the years of terrorism that my own children endured, and at first I thought, oh my God, 50 years of a battle, and we lost. And then I had to remember, no, we've kept abortion legal and safe for 50 years. And God willing, we're going to keep it in Michigan. She sees women... You know, in every every aspect of this decision, and she says, you know, every story is different, but the thing that unites them is that they are making the choice that makes sense for their lives. But she says, you know, they counsel people, and she says, if they if they can't get the head and the heart on the same page, they'll turn people away. You know, but so most of the people that they see, they know what they need. More than half of our patients are already parents to children. And they tell us they make these decisions to take care of the families that they have. Particularly lately, with the cost of everything going up, you can't get baby formula. Groceries are going up. Gas is going up. One more baby in the mix, and they might not make it. But that's one set of circumstances. The, the patients who believe they can't be a good parent, an adoption is not for them. They're making decisions about their life for what they know about themselves. She's able to help them in this compassionate way that she was not helped. They can talk about babies all they want. They don't back it up with real support for pregnant women or for babies. And they never have. So what did Renee tell you about the state of the state of things across the country and then in Michigan? So I wanted to show you a picture of a map. Do you mind if I Yeah, can? no, please do. I, I think the language she used was that Michigan has a chance to be, I don't remember the exact words, a bright light or a beacon or something for, for other states. Well, no, this is, this is a different one. Oh, okay. These are all the states. 
expected to not everything in red mm-hmm. by the end of the year not to have abortion. Right now, because of a court order um, that bars enforcement of Michigan's pre-existing statute that basically outlaws abortion in, in almost every case, um, because of a court order that, that um, bars that from being enforced, abortion is still right now legal in Michigan. For Renee and the Northland Clinic, she said it was very clear they're going to continue practicing um, or providing abortions until, you know, there's a decision one way or the other. But they're not going to break the law. If, if it's ruled illegal, they will have to, to close their doors. What she's pinning her hopes on right now is the proposed ballot measure um, for reproductive rights that would, among other things, codify abortion rights in the, in the Michigan state constitution. If we don't get the signatures and we don't get on the ballot, we don't have a protection in Michigan. And um, right now they're in the petition, the phase of that gathering signatures. From what we've heard, they are on track together. They need more than, I believe, 400,000 signatures. It's a roadmap for other states, maybe not the red states, not the real red states. But failure is not an option or the whole country loses hope. Michigan could either become a complete abortion desert and people will be leaving the state to obtain care and not being able to get it, or people will be coming to Michigan to obtain abortions. I just have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. So I was born in 1981, so abortion has always been legal for as long as I've been alive. I mean, so for people roughly, well, I guess a little bit older than me and younger, what do you want them to know about like a world where abortion is actually illegal? Because I feel like a lot of people are even having trouble grasping that concept. Like, even if they intellectually are like, okay, they don't really know what that means. So what do you, what would you say to them about what that world will look like? So you're my daughter's ages. You're right in between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and their friends have never believed that abortion, that Roe would be overturned. That we're doing this for you. That we're doing it, if not for you, for your kids, that for someone you love in the future could need an abortion. I don't want them to have the kind of abortion I had. When the governor of Louisiana, when asked about the maternal mortality rate in his state, said, it's not so bad if you don't count black women. We should be scared. Women are dying from childbirth in those states because there's not access to good maternity care and the infant mortality rate is high. This is about the future for anyone we know and love. And it's up to them now. I'm 71. I'm never going to need another abortion. I know where my daughters can get one, and I could fast-track them an appointment if they needed one. Nobody else is going to be able to do that. And that's what they need to understand. We're fighting, and we have, for women and everyone they love, for men and everyone they love, for the last 49 years. That's what this is about. I could have retired 10 years ago and been playing with my grandkids, but instead, I'm in a battle, and I'm not quitting until we at least get through this election, and then I'll see what happens. This story was reported by the Detroit Free Press and Michigan Radio. A major thank you goes out to Sarah Swig and Nancy Kaffer for sharing this story with us. 
This on the line episode was produced by me and Darcy Moran. Anjana Delgado and Marianne Struman are our executive producers. Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show is called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lost Boy. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please like and subscribe to it. Share it with your friends and family. And uh, don't forget to come back next week. See you then.